are familiar with the term the Christmas Wars. Raise your hand. Also known as the uh, Christmas Controversies or the War on Christmas. Anybody heard of those terms? Okay, a few of you are familiar with that. Yeah. For those of you who haven't, that's a, a term that, that refers to the, the battle that is being fought by individuals and, and groups over the past several years in our country against the universal celebration or even the common acknowledgement of the Christmas season. Each and every year, at this time of year, you normally hear numerous reports on the news of individuals and groups taking issue with the celebration or even the, the very mention of Christmas in public places or in, in government buildings or uh, public schools or even at department stores. A few weeks ago, with this sermon in mind, I was reading through a few of these reports and I came across uh, one story that, that really caught my eye and it happened last year at the uh, Capitol in Wisconsin. Last November, Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker got hammered by a well-known atheist by the name of Annie Lori Gaylor of the Madison-based group known as the Freedom From Religion Foundation because he referred to the Christmas tree at the Capitol as a Christmas tree. Gaylor, who is the co-founder of the Freedom From Religion Foundation, was furious when she heard that and went public shortly after stating how horribly offensive and insensitive the governor's comments were. She explained that her and others from the FFRF wanted the tree to be called a holiday tree to avoid the suggestion that government chooses one religion over another. She said, and I quote, It's essentially a discourtesy by the governor to announce that. He intends that to be a slight and a snub to non-Christians, otherwise he would not do it. And this is not the only time that, that Gaylor and her group have, have spoken out. They often travel the country spreading their anti-Christmas and anti-Christian message. Yet here's the, the ironic thing. Though, though Gaylor and her group often speak out against public schools and government and corporate businesses for endorsing one belief system over another, and though they often argue that saying things like Merry Christmas and uh, uh, singing Christmas carols in public is offensive to the one holding an opposing belief, the FFRF have never been all that concerned themselves with offending people. They've been known to spend a ton of money at this time of year putting up billboards with a picture of Santa Claus on it, telling a little girl, yes, Virginia, there is no God. And uh, every year they, they contribute to the Christmas display in the state capitol rotunda in Madison, Wisconsin, with this sign here up on the screen that reads... At this season of the winter solstice, may reason prevail. There are no gods, no devils, no heaven or hell. There is only our natural world. Religion is but a myth and superstition that hardens hearts and enslaves minds. Wow. 
bit of a double standard, don't you think? But I'm not saying all that to get you all worked up this morning and angry. That's not my intent. My point here this morning is just to make the point that there is opposition in our world today toward Christianity, isn't there? There is. I don't think there would be anyone in here that I would have to convince of that. There are many in our world today, like Gaylor, who are not only opposed to Christ and his followers, but to anything remotely tied to him and to them. There is serious opposition toward Christ and Christians and the Christian faith today. And when we as believers encounter this kind of opposition, there are some natural questions that we often ask. Number one is why? Why do people have such a hatred toward Christ and the Christian faith? And number two is when? When did this all start? What brought this about? And number three is what? What are we as believers supposed to do in response? Well, fortunately, God doesn't leave us in the dark on these things. He tells us how we are to think and how we are to understand and how we are to respond to opposition in his word. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 2. This morning we are finishing our sermon series entitled Matthew's Christmas Story. And today we are going to to, uh, look at verses 13 through 23 of chapter 2. And we are going to be discussing what we learn about opposition toward Christ. The first thing we learn is this. Opposition to Jesus is nothing new. It's nothing new. Now, this is important for us to understand because we often act like it is. We often act like opposition is a new thing. When we hear reports like the one I just read to you about opposition toward Christ and Christmas, we often ask questions like, what in the world is our world coming to? Any of y'all ever ask that question? Yeah? I've heard some say things like this, man, if we could just, if we could just get back to the way things used to be, life would be a lot better. Back to when? Back to when everybody believed in Jesus? When was that? No. The truth is, there has always been opposition to God's people. Always. And we see here, in our text for this morning, we see opposition in Matthew chapter 2. Look at verse 13. Matthew says, Now when they had departed... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Notice here, Jesus is a toddler. He's a child. He has not yet healed one person, not yet preached one sermon in his earthly ministry, and yet you already have someone who wants to kill him. Jesus was hated from birth. The war on Christmas did not begin in the 21st century, folks. It began in the first century. 
And believers, it's so important that we realize this, and I'll tell you why. Because when we experience opposition, what many often want to do is just sort of throw their hands up and say, this world is a mess. It's in the gutter, past the point of return. Listen, God has written in his word how we are to think about and respond to opposition. And it's not with this defeatist, fatalistic mentality. The reason why this book, the Bible, is a great book for us to study, one of the many reasons, is because we have right here in the scriptures, book after book, chapter after chapter, verse after verse of messages written to people who have had to endure the exact same things that we're enduring today. We do. We have right here in Matthew chapter 2 a passage on opposition written to a group of believers in the first century who had to face greater challenges than we have to face today. God's Word gives us great instructions on how to live as light in this dark world. If you're here this morning, you're appalled at the state of things in our world today, though it's good for you to be angry and disgusted by the sin in our lives and in our world, I urge you to seek answers from this book. Don't throw your hands up and give up, but look to God in His Word on how to live and represent Him in this fallen world in which we live. So the first thing we learn in this passage is that opposition to Christ is nothing new. Second thing we learn about opposition in Matthew 2 is that opposition to Christ is often severe. This point is really a, a continuation of the first, but just like there are many in our world today who are discouraged about the, the amount of opposition there is toward Christianity, some of the same people are also discouraged by the severity of it. Again, people think that today things are as bad as they've ever been and think that we're far past the point of return. Well, we learn right here in Matthew chapter 2 that believers in the first century had to face far greater and much more severe opposition than we have to endure today. In those days... The least of their worries was an anti-Christian billboard. They would have loved to have had that kind of opposition. Now look at what they were faced with in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Again, like we said last week, we see here how truly wicked Herod is and how strongly opposed he is to this baby. In this passage, we're told that Herod was so furious that he had been tricked by these wise men who said they would return and tell him the whereabouts of this baby. And he was, he was so furious with the fact that there is this baby out there that people are calling king of the Jews that he decides to do the unthinkable. He doesn't put up anti-Jesus billboards. He doesn't go on CNN and tell the world how offended he is 
that people are calling Jesus the king. But he says, I'm going to show these people who are, who's really on the throne. I'm going to take out all the baby boys around this baby's age. I'm going to kill them all. I'm going to take out all the male children who are like Jesus in terms of age and proximity. And like I explained last week, Herod probably does this for two reasons. One, to make sure he gets his man, but two, to also let the Jewish people know that there's no Jewish child who's going to come up through the ranks and rise up and take away his throne. We see right here, in the Christmas story, over 2,000 years ago, that there was strong opposition to Jesus. Strong opposition to this event and to this person in history. And it's ruthless opposition. You have a king killing babies. That's how opposed Herod was to this child. That's how opposed he is to Christ. Why? What angered Herod when it came to this baby? Why was he so angry? We talked about this last week too, didn't we? Herod was opposed to this child because this child was a threat to his throne. You see, Herod was the king. And he wanted things to stay that way. He did not like anyone coming along who was going to threaten his rule, which is why he is opposed to Jesus. And guess what? That's the same reason why many are opposed to him today, isn't it? It is. Listen, I want you to get this. This is key. The real reason for opposition toward Jesus, the real reason why many are opposed to him is because people want to be the king of their lives. Though the anti-Lori Gaylers of this world hide behind science and reason, their real reason for opposition of the Christian faith is because they want to be the king. They want to be their own authority. They don't like the idea of someone coming in and is going to take away their rule, which is why they're opposed to Jesus, because that's exactly what he came to do. Jesus has come as the king. And not just any king, the king of kings. To be the king over us. Which is why opposition to Christ is so severe. Well, there's a third thing that we learn about opposition in this passage, and it's this. This is a good one. The first two are a little bit negative, but it's this. Opposition to Jesus is never successful. Look at verse 14 through 15 and verses 19 through 22. And Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. In these verses, we learn a simple yet key truth in Scripture, and it's this. If you are opposed to Christ, you will lose. If you are opposed to Christ, you will lose. It's as simple as that. 
In this passage, we're told of two kings. One was Herod, who we know was opposed to Jesus. And the other is his son, who we learn about from history, was a violent man as well. Sources tell us that Archelaus began his rule by slaughtering 3,000 influential people. And probably for that reason, among others, Joseph and Mary are warned by God not to return to the area of his rule. In this story, you have these powerful and wicked rulers who would love more than anything to kill this special child, and yet this little baby boy and his parents of little influence prevail. And this is a theme that runs throughout Jesus' life, isn't it? At his most vulnerable moments in his life, when he's a baby, when he's being pursued by these powerful and wicked kings, when he's in the wilderness, being tempted by Satan, when he's dying on the cross, at his most vulnerable moments during his earthly ministry against powerful spiritual forces, wicked rulers and influential religious leaders, Jesus prevails. He prevails. He's victorious time and time again. And he's also victorious throughout history. I could share with you story after story from Christian history of how Jesus has prevailed against all odds through his faithful followers and through his church. The history books are are filled with opposition toward Christ and his people. And you know what else they're filled with? They're filled with stories of how his gospel has thrived and how his kingdom has advanced against all odds. It's amazing. But it shouldn't surprise us, believers. We're told throughout Scripture that God's plan will be accomplished and that His Son will be victorious. We're even told how it's going to end. We're told that in the end, Christ is going to prevail over all His enemies and that death itself is going to be swallowed up forever. You know, there are a few things in this world that we can be confident about because this life is filled with so many uncertainties, isn't it? We were hit with several this week, blindsided. But this is one thing that we can take to the bank, believers. Christ has been, is, and will be victorious. And this is a great truth for us to remember around Christmas time. When we think about the child in the manger, what should come to mind is not, oh, what a cute little baby, but victory. Victory. The child in the manger not only eventually prevails over Herod and his son, but he goes on to defeat all of his enemies, Satan included, and goes on to defeat our greatest enemy, death itself. So though opposition is common, and often severe, it's never successful. There's a fourth and final truth we learn about opposition from Matthew 2. And it's a hard one for us to swallow, but it's this. Opposition to Jesus is a part of God's plan. We see this in verses 14 through 15, in verses 16 through 18, and in verses 22 through 23. First look at 14 and 15. Matthew tells us, Joseph rose 
and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This, Matthew says, was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Look at verse 16 through 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Look at verse 22 through 23. But when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. There is a key word that we find in all three of these passages. You know what it is? Fulfilled. Fulfilled. We learn in these passages that, that Christ's person and that his life and that his circumstances were all foretold in Scripture. These verses teach us that all the activities and events and circumstances in Christ's life, all of those things were foretold in the Old Testament. The prophecies of the Old Testament bear witness to the life of Christ. We learn it not once, not twice, but three times here in this short passage in Matthew 2. As I explained earlier when introducing this book, this is a theme that runs throughout the entire book, the book of Matthew. We learn in this gospel that the life and the times and the death and the resurrection of Christ are all a part of God's plan. They are all foretold by the prophets. And who told the prophets? Verse 15, the Lord. The Lord is the one who told them. See, it's all according to God's plan. Matthew is very interested in his readers understanding this. That everything in Christ's life was set forth in history past. His birth was predicted in the book. And it came to pass by the book. The circumstances in his life were in the book. And they came to pass by the book. His death was recorded in the book. And it came to pass by the book. His resurrection was recorded in the book. And it came to pass by the book. The whole of his life came to pass in accordance with precisely the things that God had set down in the scriptures of the Old Testament. Now, many of us, we, we don't have problems acknowledging the fact that God is sovereign and that he's actively at work when times are good, do we? That's easy. But what about when times are bad? Not as easy, is it? Therefore, when bad things happen, many people try to get God off the hook, saying, well, he's not in con complete control. That must have taken God off guard. If only God were here and at work, this would not have happened. Many people, when bad things occur, that's why they cry out because they have this mentality. That's why they cry out, where are you, God? Why weren't you here? Listen. Scripture teaches us 
that he's right there. And he's at work in the midst of any and every circumstance. And believers, this should be a comfort to you to know that he is. Should not bother you that nothing happens outside of God's control, but it should set your mind at ease. Because scripture assures us that that not only is he at work in each of these situations, but he's working things for the good of his people. He is. Don't believe me, let me give you a few examples from scripture. First think of Joseph. Remember Joseph? Was God working in and through the tragic circumstances in Joseph's life? Was he at work? When his brothers plotted to kill him and sold him into slavery? You bet he was. In fact, Joseph told us he was. In Genesis 50, he told his brothers, As for you, you've been evil against me, but God meant it for good. Now, if God wasn't involved in any way, shape, or form, why in the world would Joseph bring him up here? No. He says, God has been in control all along. And he has taken your, your, your evil deeds and he has made something wonderful out of them. What about Job? Did God know about the trials that came his way? You bet he did. In fact, we're told that he did. God was at work in the midst of that. The best example that I can give you is the cross. The most heinous act ever committed in human history was the crucifixion of Christ. Let me ask you this. Who put Christ to death? Well, we learn that he did die at the hands of evil men, but who was behind it all? God was. Some of you are shocked by that, but Scripture tells us that he was. In one of the greatest chapters in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, one of the greatest messianic prophecies that we have in all the Bible, the one, the, the, the chapter where we're told by his stripes, by Jesus' stripes, we are healed. Do you know what it says in Isaiah 53:10? It said, it was the will of God to crush his son. Why? For our salvation. For our salvation. So he was behind it all, but it was ultimately for our good. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament on this truth is found in Romans 8.28. This verse makes this point perfectly. In this verse, Paul says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Believers, this verse should help you sleep at night. Paul says all things work together for good for believers. How many things? What things? All things. All things. Pain and pleasure, sorrow and joy, opposition and and favor. All things ultimately work our way. All things serve to mature us and grow us and make us into more of who God has called us to be. All things, good and bad, righteous and evil, all things are used by God and they're they're ultimately, they bring about our good and they accomplish His purposes. This is one thing Satan has yet to figure out, folks. He has yet to understand that his actions throughout history have simply served to accomplish God's perfect plan. His temptation in Eden did lead to the fall, but you know what that fall led to? The incarnation of Christ. His possession of Judas to betray Jesus 
did lead to Jesus's crucifixion but you know what that crucifixion led to Christ's resurrection and those two events are the reason why we're able to become children of God believers it's so very important that we understand this about opposition that we understand that nothing happens outside of God's control and that we rest in the fact that God is good and that he's at work in every circumstance working in both the good and the bad situations through the hands of both the righteous and the wicked to accomplish his purposes for the good of his people before we close this morning let me say this you know many think it's strange this time of year to be talking about the topic of opposition because it's Christmas right I mean we think about Christmas we we think about world peace right now what the angels meant well, we'll learn next week that's not what they meant they talked about peace when Christ came but yet people think that you know they think that Christmas is about peace over all the earth they think it's about it's about coming together and putting differences aside and hear me when I say that's a great thing but that's not what the God's Christmas message is all about it's not we've been learning about what it's about in Matthew's gospel right and we learned this morning that the Christmas story is a story of opposition it is opposition toward Christ and toward any and all of those who have ties to him his story reminds us that there is a war that is being fought and it's a war that's been going on since the beginning and it was fought 2,000 years ago and it's being fought today there's a war taking place right now between good and evil God and Satan those opposed to God and those who belong to him but though that's the case one thing that we should keep in mind and that we should never forget believers is that though opposition is nothing new and is at times severe God's word is clear that opposition toward him will never be successful it all happens like everything else in life according to God's perfect plan all things are falling in place the way God planned it and God is is using the the helpful actions of the faithful and also the opposing actions of his enemy to accomplish his kingdom purposes for the good of his people we see this throughout scripture we see this truth in the events surrounding the fall in the first book of the Bible Genesis chapter 3 we see that Christ was the plan from the beginning we see it in the events surrounding Jesus's birth like we discussed this morning and we see it at his crucifixion and we're gonna see it happen in the end folks we are there's going to be opposition till the end but we know how it's gonna end up believers don't we we know that it ends in victory Paul tells us that in 1st Corinthians chapter 15 verses 24 through 25 he says then comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power for Christ must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet these are some exciting verses that Paul gives us here that tell us of the coming victory of King Jesus the victory that he's gonna have over his enemies and the victory that we're gonna have believers in him Paul says he is going to destroy every authority and power and put all of his enemies under his feet. 
I know I explained this to you a little bit during the sermon through 1 Corinthians, but I want to share it again because this is so good. In those days, in the first century, when a king had conquered a neighboring kingdom, the defeated king would be brought forward and would be made to kneel with his face on the floor before the victorious king. And that victorious king would then take his foot and place it on the head of his enemy. It was a sign of total victory. You know, there's coming a day when Jesus is going to do that. There's coming a day when Jesus is going to defeat every enemy in total victory. He's going to destroy the works of the devil. He's going to defeat all enemies of God. And he is going to deliver the kingdom over to the Father. What a day that is going to be. And folks, with that day in mind, I want to encourage each and every one of you today to make sure that you're on the right side of the war, the winning side. Scripture is clear that those who are without Christ are opposed to Him, plain and simple, and will one day cower in defeat under the foot of Christ. But the good news is that Christ has come and become one of us and has lived for us and has overcome this fallen world and he's brought peace between God and man through him. That's what the angels meant when they made that proclamation of peace. They're referring to the great work that Christ was going to do on the earth and the, and the great work that he did do on the cross. Listen, Christ came and he identified with us and represented us and accomplished salvation for us so that we could identify with him and be at peace with God what Christ came to do if you're here this morning and you're on the wrong side of the war because up to this point in your life you've lived your life apart from and opposed to God I urge you this day to get on the right side become a child of God by identifying with Christ by trusting in his person and work and in following him if you haven't done that I pray you would this morning Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this time of year.